Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. It is not the Christian's job to disprove the other person's claim. The burden of proof is on the person who makes the claim, especially if it's controversial. Hey friends, welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. I've got a great conversation to bring you today. If your social media newsfeed looks anything like mine, you're seeing a lot of vitriol, a lot of anger, people talking past each other, miscommunications, and I think that we can all agree that we need to and want to do better. Well, we're going to talk with Greg Kokel today about navigating difficult conversations, and we're going to particularly focus in on the issue of progressive Christianity. How can we have better and more fruitful conversations with the progressive Christians in our life. But first, I want to tell you about today's sponsor. Impact 360 is a ministry that exists to equip the next generation of Christian leaders to live out their faith in what's being called a post-truth culture, a post-Christian culture. And one of the ways they do that is with their Fellows Program, which is a nine-month gap year program where gifted philosophers and apologists come and spend quality time with the Fellows, mentoring them, discipling them, and preparing them to lead in their college college campuses, in their careers, or wherever God leads them in their life. You can go to impact360.org for more information. If you decide to apply or there's a young person in your life who wants to apply, you can use my name as a promo code. That's A-L-I-S-A to waive your application fee. Impact360.org. My guest today is Greg Kokel, the founder and president of Stand to Reason, which is a wonderful apologetics ministry that focuses on training Christians to think more clearly about their faith and to give incisive, gracious, even-handed defenses of Christianity in the public square. 
And he's written several books, including the one we're gonna talk about today called Tactics. And I just have to say on a personal note, when I was in the midst of my faith crisis, it was Stand to Reason and the book Tactics. Those were main resources that God used to help reconstruct and rebuild my faith. And so we've had several STR folks on the podcast already. We've had Amy Hall and Tim Barnett. We just finished up a series with Alan Schleeman, but today, we have their boss, the main man himself, <laughs> Greg Kokel. So Greg, welcome to the podcast. It's such a joy to have you on. I'm, I'm really surprised I haven't had you on yet, so I'm glad you're here. Yeah, it's really a treat to be talking with you today about this topic, and I'm really flattered to have had some role in the past in your own life and kind of uh, clearing up some of your confusion. And maybe we'll talk a little later about how some of these tactics can be applied to the particular thing that you're interested in now. Well, and I have to say, Tactics, just the book, is probably the book I recommend more than any other book. In fact, just this morning, I was on a Zoom uh, Q&A apologetics panel for a local college here where I live, and almost every question that would come up had to do with how do I talk to people? How do I present these ideas? And I had your book right here, and I just kept holding it up saying, <laughs> tactics. I don't know what else to tell you. Just get tactics. Uh -huh. And so I'm glad we get to talk about it because the practical way that you have integrated not just the information of apologetics, but communicating that information is just brilliant because really there are two elements to apologetics. There's the learning part, there's the gathering of the evidence, there's the analyzing it, there's the learning the facts and all of that. But then we have to be able to take that information and be able to effectively communicate that to the people that we love, the people that God puts in our path. And so that's, right. that's where tactics comes in. It, it really yeah. takes part of, or takes care of that second part of that. And so, uh, you know, just like I said, one of the main questions I'm always asked is how, how do I talk to my friends and my family about this stuff? And so, um, Tactics wasn't necessarily written with progressive Christianity in mind, but we're going to talk today about how to talk to our progressive Christian friends because all of the tactics transfer over. Uh, right. They work in virtually any kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. And so for, for someone who may be completely unfamiliar with the book yeah. Tactics, what, what's it about? Your subtitle says it's a game plan for discussing right. your Christian convictions. Go ahead and unpack that for us. What well, are tactics? Well, a big and important thing for me, Alisa, is that I want to train Christians. I have a discipleship heart. I'm actually more concerned about Christians than non-Christians. I don't have a, so much of a heart for evangelism and for the lost like many people do. Um, mine is for the church of a discipleship. I want to see the Great Commission fulfilled, you know, and of course that includes bringing people to Christ. But my particular heartbeat is to transfer information that will help people do that more effectively. And so that's why I call this a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions, because I've discovered that people are more effective in um, in a certain sense accomplishing a task that they're unfamiliar with if you give them a easy-to-follow step-by-step method. Okay, and what you touched on a few moments ago what is a real uh, motivation for me to put this together and develop these things for myself because I, I develop these things um, in the process of engaging people. Um, I've spoken on more than 85 college and university campuses. Uh, I've been a Christian for almost 46 years. And so uh, we, 
in my experience of engaging people in all those environments, I found that some things worked better than other things. And um, especially when you have an environment that is um, getting more and more hostile to Christians, it's helpful if we can find a way that we can get into conversations on controversial issues without getting in fights. As the, the way I put it in the book is so it looks more like diplomacy than D-Day, okay? And here is where I think the tactical game plan provides something that is missing characteristically in uh, conferences that you and I both attend or have attended and sometimes teach at that, um, that, that hasn't been there. It's missing because most of those are information-oriented. And this is what you are getting at uh, a moment ago, um, Elisa. This is the knowledge we have to have. Okay, that's really important. But how do you get the knowledge into play? That's the question. And this is where there's been a missing, let's just call it a bridge, from the content to the conversation, from the scholarship to the relationship. And that's what the tactical game plan provides, a way of engaging in a friendly way, without getting into a fight, without getting um, yourself into a corner either, in a way that there's tremendous safety. Now, I want to emphasize this because, because there's a lot of people sitting on the bench because they're afraid of getting into a conversation that might turn into something ugly. And so they don't want that to happen. And so they don't get into any conversation at all. This tactical game plan solves that problem. Now, that's a strong phrase uh, to use. It's a strong way to put it. But I say that because so many people have told me that, Elisa. They have told me this book is, um, what they've said is this book has changed my life. And they say it over and over and over again. And it's it's flattering to me. It's humbling when I hear that. But I'm not entirely surprised because the maneuvers or the techniques in the book, the game plan proper changed my life too in my ability to engage in a comfortable, safe, and effective way on controversial issues with people who don't agree with me. And that's a pretty good recipe, it seems to me. It really is. And I just from personal experience, I will tell you, I I am not naturally a good debater. I don't think that's a skill set that comes natural to me. So sometimes I'll have uh, invitations to have discussions with people who disagree with me on various you know, media platforms, radio shows, and and whatnot. And once in a while, I'll accept the invitation. But the only reason that I'll accept the invitation is because I practice my tactics. And oh, it was, good for you. You know, I just <laughs> used this um, very recently. I was on Justin Brierley's unbelievable podcast, oh, okay. talking with yeah. another progressive Christian, and I ended up asking, and we're going to get to this this tactic in a moment, but literally asking, "What do you mean by that? And how mm. did you come to that conclusion?" And just finding ways to insert that into conversation that keeps it flowing, but like you said, keeps it from becoming coming a fight. And so uh, I'm excited for my listeners to learn some of these tactics. Hopefully they'll pick up the book and dive a little deeper. But the book was written 10 years ago, so you've just released the 10th anniversary edition. That's right. And so tell us what's different about the the updated version as opposed to the original version. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm holding the two up here, and you can see the old version and the new version. And if you look closely, you can see this one's a lot thicker, <laughs> 40% new material. And I noticed when you flashed 
your copy. It was the old version because yes. the new I version the new has <laughs> this red thing at the top. Yes. So I need to send you a copy of the new version here with the 40% new material because um, not only is your copy all dog-eared and everything, but I want you to get the new stuff as well. Um, <clears throat> we have um, – I think the old version had like let's uh, 14 chapters. I think we have 19 chapters now. I've doubled the number of tactics because I have a, one chapter on a new tactic that I've used for a long time, but I never really articulated. I call it inside out. And then I have a chapter called a mini tactics in which I have four or five additional tactics that I, I call a mini tactics because I can explain them in like three or four paragraphs with a couple of illustrations and people can get it pretty quickly and I don't have to put devote an entire chapter to each one. I took uh, things that were already in the existing book, like defending against others who are using tactics against you. I had like two paragraphs in there. I made a whole chapter out of that and called it turnabout because um, there is a liability when certain types of people use certain types of tactical maneuvers um, with a Christian in an, in an effort to uh, get them confused or to get them twisted up or to, to uh, affirm things they don't mean to affirm. And so we have to be on the defensive on that case. That's when people are using tactics in a manipulative fashion, which is not what I recommend, as you know. Right. So those are some of the uh, the advantages of the new book. I mean, if people got the old book, a lot of them do. You know, 200,000 folks have purchased the old book, and I'm glad they have it. But um, I think they should get the new one, too, because there's – I took the older stuff and I and I in 10 years, I found better ways to communicate in my writing. And so I think I've um, improved the the style, if you will. And then I expanded on the things that were already there. And then I added things that weren't included in the new one. So this is a full rewrite Every word I've gone over, and um, there is, uh, I think, the way it's described here is updated and expanded, you know, and that's a, that's a good way to describe it. I think the second edition is, the 10th anniversary edition is much better than the, than the original. Well, I really look forward to it because I don't know if you can see this or not on your camera. This is just what a typical <laughs> couple of pages. I'm just going to like randomly look at this. I mean... It's ridiculous. <laughs> My husband said, you should just highlight the parts you don't need highlighted, and then it would make a, whole, <laughs> a right. whole lot more sense. <laughs> save more yellow ink that way. <laughs> right. That's nice. So one of the sort of game-changing uh, aspects of your book was the metaphor you used when you compare uh, evangelism with gardening. And yes. you sort of compare the gardener with the harvester. So yeah. give the listeners a little bit of, a, of an insight into what that's all about. Because honestly, this, this felt like freedom to me when I read this. Yeah. And I was able to have a lot more faith conversations with, with people in my, just anywhere, just Uber drivers and things like that after right. I read this section. Yeah, this is actually a little bit controversial, Alisa, and I have gotten a tongue lashing from people who um, everybody listening would recognize their names because they're significant players and they disagreed with this point. But I agree with you. This distinction between gardening and harvesting is 
has transformed my approach to the enterprise. And I know because people told me it has gotten a lot of people off the bench and into play. Yes. Okay. And here's kind of the guiding principle. It's very simple and very straightforward and not even very profound. Um, and the principle is before there can be any harvest, you always have to have a season of gardening. Before there can be any harvest, you always have to have a season of gardening. Well, this is obvious in agriculture, but it's also true in our individual lives. Now, um, as I recall from reading your book, uh, which isn't out yet, but it's going to be out soon, and I, I think it's fabulous, the one on another gospel. Um, you were raised a Christian. I mm -hmm. was not. I became a Christian when I was a young adult. Well, an adult. I was 23. And I... Uh, and for people who in that situation, there is a season of time where you're thinking about the issues and you're asking questions and you come to the table and then you push back and then you get in some arguments and you come back to the table and you ask more questions and little by little by little, you moving towards the cross until the time of harvest, which for me was, uh, September 28th, 1973. And my brother, Mark came to visit me. He was a Christian. He'd been doing most of the gardening. He started to witness again to me. And I told him, Mark, you don't have to say anything more. I've already decided I want to become a Christian. Okay, and that was the night that I, I, I made, said, prayed the prayer, and I began walking actively with Christ. Notice something, though. By that time, the fruit was ripe. And when the fruit was ripe, it just fell into the basket. Ripe fruit is easy to harvest. It's the gardening process leading up to that that is the hard work. And as I thought more and more about that, I realized that actually when I look back at my life, I'm a gardener. Uh, the, the, the lectures I give and the talks I give and the radio and the books and TV or whatever it is that I'm doing I've, over the last many, many years, 27 years Let's see. Tomorrow, I think, is our anniversary wow. at Stand to Reason. Tomorrow, as we're doing this uh, particular broadcast, taping, I should say, but it's May 1st, um, all of that stuff, <clears throat> pardon me, has been, has been gardening in people's lives. And I, I'm going to say something now that is going to freak out a lot of your listeners, and <clears throat> it's okay. And that is that I have not prayed with someone to receive Christ in more than 30 years. When I say that to an audience, everybody goes dead silence and the jaws are hitting the floor. They don't know how to respond. <laughs> I know what they're thinking. What a loser, you know? Yeah. However, uh, and I explained to them because I realized that my role in the body of Christ is gardener. And since we're gardening is where most of the work is done, um, which leads to the harvest, I think most people in the, in the body of Christ are are actually gardeners and not harvesters. But you know that our evangelism techniques, the emphasis turns out to be mostly harvesting emphasis. There's the prayer at the end of the little booklet, four steps to peace with God, bang, pray to receive Christ. And so we think that's where we've got to go in our conversations. We've got to swing for the fences. And if we don't get there, bummer, if we don't lead people to Christ, we're losers or something like that. And I mean, I became a Christian during the Jesus movement, and that was a big deal back then. Of course, it was easier to lead people to Christ in that environment, much harder now. And so I began to focus more on, I don't even know if I decided to focus on it, but I realized as I'm thinking about this, I'm really gardening more and more and more. And then I stumbled upon a passage in John chapter four. And you know, Lisa, how it is when you, you read a passage a bunch of times and you don't see something that you, you now you're looking at and you say, where'd that come from? That's what happened to me. 
after Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, he's speaking to the disciples. And he tells the disciples, you are about to reap where you did not sow. You are about to reap where you did not sow. Wow. You see, in that once, in other words, somebody else did the heavy lifting. They're going to come in and get the low hanging fruit. They're going to get the easy pickings. All right. Now, in that one statement, Jesus identifies one field. In that case, it was Sychar. Um, two different seasons, though, a, a, a reaping, I'm sorry, a sowing season and a reaping season, a gardening and a harvesting season and two kinds of workers gardeners and harvesters. And Jesus even says that. He says the proverb is fulfilled that some sow and some reap. And you see, we're all on the same team and we all work together. We don't do the same thing. And I think if we just do our job as good gardeners, and that's what the tactical game plan is meant to help people to do, the harvest is going to take care of itself. And then those people the ones probably who are complaining to me about this principle, those people who are harvesters, see the harvesters always get bugged by this. Yeah, the people yeah. who are harvesters, they're going to be there by the grace of God and by the sovereign hand of God to help lead that person into, into the kingdom if they need anyone to help them. You know, in the New Testament, there weren't people asking others do you want to pray to receive Christ? That didn't happen in the book of Acts. Right. The gospel was preached. People believed. That was the pattern there. So um, anyway, so so it's interesting then Jesus says, so that the one who sows and the one who reaps can rejoice together. So let me give you a little insight here to my earlier comment. I said, I haven't prayed with anybody uh, to receive Christ in 30 years. Oh, what a loser. However, I don't know if any of your listeners have heard of a guy named... I don't know, Jay Warner Wallace. Does that name sound familiar? Okay, Cold Case Christianity. I know he's a close yeah, friend of yours. And he's been on the podcast a couple of times, so my listeners okay, will be familiar. Well, there you with go. Him. Yeah. Jim Wallace was in my garden when he was an atheist. He was listening to our show and stand to reason when he was trying to figure it all out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, someone else. Uh, or some other time later, he became a Christian. You know, I'm curious to ask him exactly how that happened, the specifics of it. But in any event, it, I didn't lead him to Christ, but he was in my garden. Now, some of your listeners might also know of a guy named uh, Abdu Murray that might come to, to mind, former Muslim who became a Christian, an attorney in Detroit, uh, then works for Ravi Zacharias, and now the senior vice president of RZIM. Uh, okay. Yeah. Abdu Murray was also in my garden. He, while he was still a Muslim, was listening to my show. And so I'll tell you what happened. Somebody came into my garden and they harvested my fruit. <laughs> Get out of my garden. <laughs> That's no, I great. don't care. The one who reaps and the one who yeah. sows rejoice together. See how it works. Yeah. And that concept has been as freeing for me as it has been for you and it's been for so many other people. In fact, that's the phrase that they often use. Boy, this just set me free. Well, and they're, it, in the, they're off the bench and they're in play in the garden now. Exactly. And that, that 
idea of being freed to get off the bench is that's the effect it had on my life because I have this whole backstory of I grew up doing a lot of street evangelism. So my dad would take us out onto the streets of LA and Hollywood and we even in summers would go to New York and do street evangelism. So I would be witnessing to people, but there was this very, no, I don't think anybody, you know, overtly pressured me to to catch that fish but that was definitely you felt like you really had to do that you had to seal the deal and get them in the net man yeah get them in the net and and bring in that net and so the people that could do some people were really good at that uh that but again like that wasn't really my natural gift to like seal the deal but so what ended up happening in my case is that I became very shy with evangelism uh, as an adult and as a Christian, just on one-on-one kind of things. I was always fine on a stage or on a platform, but on one-on-one situations, I would get really shy because I was afraid that what I was going to say would not end up in the salvation of the person, and then I would, you know, I'd be a failure. Right. But when I read this section in your book, I remember having a, an Uber drive uh, with this this driver that just started talking to me, and I thought, I'm going to try. I'm going to try this. And so I just, I, I could tell by some of the things he had said that he was probably a Muslim. So I just asked him, I said, are, are you a Muslim? And he was like, yes. <laughs> and he was kind uh-huh. of thinking, why is she asking me? You know, And we had the greatest conversation. I learned that he was actually married to a Christian woman. And uh-huh. there was all this stuff going on. We talked about Jesus. We talked about a lot of things. But without that just intense pressure to pressure, seal the right. deal and get the prayer out of him, I, uh-huh. I felt just even before the Lord, it, was, it felt so great to know that maybe that was just a little bit of watering that seed that yeah. maybe his wife had planted as a Christian. And, and so it was just freeing. That is the word. Sure. It's, it's freeing. You know, there's, a, there's another uh, a detail I need to mention here to kind of a bad perspective. And that is, well, th- people might be thinking, well, if you're not trying to lead them to Christ, which I, I'm trying to move them towards Christ, but I'm not trying to lead them to Christ in that sense that we're discussing right now, then what are you trying to do? How would you characterize it? What's your bottom line? And I put it very simply. My goal is just simply to put a stone in their shoe. Yes. <laughs> to annoy them in a good way a little bit, to get them thinking. And in wow. fact, when I speak on a university campus, I say this right up front. I'm not here to... to convert you. I, I just want to annoy you a little bit, you know, <laughs> but in a good way. And of course, they start laughing because they expect the Christian to annoy them. I right. say, okay, I'm your guy, but you're going to, th- hopefully you'll thank me when I'm done. I said, I want you walking out of the auditorium with something that I've said, just kind of getting at you a little bit. You're thinking about it because I think Jesus is worth thinking about. And that's it. If I could just move that person a little further along, then I'm happy. And see, by lowering the bar, not just for myself, at least the entry bar, you know, if you've got a low bar and you're just going to do a little bit here, like when you garden, I, I don't know, look, we're pulling a lot of weeds right now in our yard. So sometimes I go out there for five minutes. I'm just going to pull a few weeds. And an hour later, I'm still out there pulling weeds because I started out with a small goal, but I just got into it and everything flowed. And there I am pulling more in the same way. We lower the bar. We say, and I'm just going to ask a few questions. We'll get to that in a moment. I'm going to draw that person out, learn a few things about them. And that's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to try to get them thinking a little bit. Like you said, water the seed just a bit. Yeah. And people have done that. Sometimes it turns into something much more complex than that. It does. And I know in my life, people have planted those little stones in my shoe, those little pebbles that just, (laughs) you know, when I had wrong ideas about things and it just 
got under, it just got into me a little bit and I couldn't really rest until I had followed it through and researched and done the yeah. theological work and the biblical work and even often ended up correcting my theological position on something because somebody loved me enough to put a pebble in my shoe. So that's that's a hey, great metaphor By the way, also. there's another angle at this is, uh, from your perspective because um, this works from both sides of the track, so to speak. Yeah. We can do that to other people, but other do, people do this to us. And a lot of your experience with confronting the progressive Christian uh, with the pastor that you met with and that whole group and everything is they kept, he kept putting stones in your shoe yeah. that you didn't know what to do with. And in that case, they were stones of, there were questions that were fair questions in many cases, but meant to cause um, doubt or rejection of classical Christian views and yeah. beliefs. And and it wasn't until you worked through the details and got the information, everything, you were able to deal with that. But notice he was doing the same thing. And it was effective, wasn't it? It Very got nice. you thinking and, uh, and, and drove you to examine more carefully your own convictions. And that's part of what's going on here. Yeah, that's a very good point. Well, one of the tactics you're possibly the most famous for is a tactic called the Columbo tactic. And there's sort of three <laughs> phases to this uh, to this tactic. So let's start with the first one. Uh, first of all, tell us about the Columbo tactic. What is it? And then what's that first phase about that you, you describe in your book as getting into the driver's seat? Right, right. Um, I'm not sure the, the uh, demographic of your listeners, but some of the younger ones may not be familiar with Lieutenant Columbo, but he is the number one TV icon of all time, according to one characterization. He even beat Lucy out. And wow. some of your listeners are saying, who's Lucy? All right. <laughs> um, but in any event, probably four decades ago now, you've got this TV show with Peter Falk, the actor, playing uh, a detective, a murder detective named Columbo. Lieutenant Columbo. And he would show up on the crime scene and he's got an old rumpled trench coat. He's got a stub of a cigar. He's walking around scratching his head, muttering himself to himself. And this guy, you know, he doesn't look like he's very smart. He looks stupid, but he's stupid like a fox because he's got a little technique that he comes in under the radar without ruffling feathers and he'll scratch his head and say, you know, there's something about this thing that bothers me, you know, in his own way. Do you mind if I ask you a question? And then there he goes and he gets a little bit of information. Ah, you're very intelligent. Hey, one more thing, you know, and he mm -hmm. one more tings him to death with question after question after question. And the, the idea here is that technique turns out to be the absolutely hands down best way for any Christian to navigate in a conversation. It is also the safest way to navigate in a conversation for a number of reasons. I just gave a podcast on that recently. There's a lot of reasons why it's a safe thing to do to use questions, but it eases you into the conversation. Okay. And it, it, um, and put and ironically, the person who asks the questions is not the person who's doing most of the talking, obviously, but it's the person who's in the driver's seat of the conversation. Right. And this is where you want to be. We've all had experiences with conversations with other people where we're feeling we're off balance. Okay. That's because they're driving and they're driving us someplace we don't want to go or we don't, maybe we're not prepared to, to go or to deal with. Okay. But if we are using questions, that means we are driving the conversation. You're doing it right now. 
look at you. You're sitting there calm and relaxed. I'm doing all the work, <laughs> all right? But I'm going in the direction that you want me to go because of the questions that you have planned for this interview. Okay, it's a perfect illustration. Yeah. Um, the person who asked the questions is in the driver's seat. And that's the key to the tactical game plan in general, is you want to stay in the driver's seat of the conversation. It doesn't mean we're manipulating people. It doesn't mean we're forcing them in an uncomfortable way to do something they don't want to do. Uh, we're not controlling them. Well, we're just we're just in in we are just using questions, the Colombo tactic, um, to direct our conversation. <clears throat> Excuse me. And by the way, the, the, this tactic, which is the core of the game plan, okay, all the other tactics serve it. So whenever we use any other tactic, like suicide or taking the roof off or just the facts, ma'am, or whatever, we are going to be employing questions even in using them. So the two tactics are working together. That's why this one is the most important because it is the game plan. And what questions will do is get you into the driver's seat in a relaxed way where there's no pressure on you. Just think of it. The pressure on the Christian is when the Christian's has to defend a view. Right. But if a Christian isn't advancing a view, but at least initially is just asking questions, no pressure. Okay. So <clears throat> there's a lot of value to that, but I just want to be brief. The first stage of that questioning process, that would be the first stage of the game plan. And there are three steps to the game plan. Easy to remember. The very first step of the game plan I'm going to say in just a moment, but I want people to keep in mind what I mean by the game plan. If a person uh, like a sports, a football player is going to play in the Super Bowl, right? When he's in the, before he goes on the field, they're working out their plays. They're figuring out how they're going to do their stuff. They're doing their, their advanced stuff, just like you mentioned yourself before you went on Briarly's, uh, um, Justin Briarly's program. All right. But when you get in the game, you're not worrying about what happens at the end. You're worrying about what you're doing right then. And if you do the steps in each play properly, the end kind of takes care of itself. So I don't want our friends here who are listening in to be distracted in a conversation by thinking about the end game, which is leading someone to Christ. Just completely forget about that for a moment. That will take care of itself if you do these steps properly. God's in charge of that part. What's the first step? The first step is just to gather information. That's all you have to do when you enter into a conversation that you are, are hopeful will have a spiritual impact, <clears throat> whether it's with a stranger, with a friend. The first thing you must do is get a lay of the land, and you get that by asking information Questions. The classic one, and the one I promote in the book, is some form of the question, what do you mean by that? And just to go back to your earlier conversation on Justin Brierley's show, when you're talking with a progressive Christian, um, this is especially important because a lot of the language they use is the same, but the meanings are yes. different. Exactly. And, uh, and, 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 and so in this situation, plus virtually every situation, people use Christian language. You want to know their definition? What do you, what do you mean by that? When you say the Bible's inspired, exactly. do you mean the same thing I mean, or do we mean different things? We're not arguing now who's right. We are just trying to get clear on the differences. That's all we're doing. This is getting the lay of the land. If you're dealing with a non-Christian and he said, well, everything's relative. Oh, now what? I'll tell you what. You ask a question. What do you mean by relative? 
then let him answer and clarify what he means before you have to take on any further responsibility. Simply put, you want to try to gather as much information about the other person's view as possible before you ever think about going any further. And I'll give you a tip about this, and I'm sure this is something you've learned yourself in using this. And then I'll give you a chance to talk a little bit. (laughs) This is great. And, And that is just asking the question, what do you mean by that, which requires of the other person that they clarify their view. Just asking that question has can have a salutary impact on them. A lot of times they don't even know what to say. Right. You get silence, right? Yeah. But if you force them to think about their own view, sometimes they realize their view isn't as good as they thought it was because now they're forced to articulate it in a clear fashion. Not they come to this realization not because I've refuted their view, but because I've just asked them to clarify their own view. So this first step gathering information, getting the lay of the land before you decide where you're going to go next. You don't know where you're going to go next until you get some intel, so to speak. And maybe you don't go anywhere next. I don't think every interaction is a divinely uh, ordained appointment or something. Some people do, but I don't. I think sometimes there are ships passing in the night. You ask a few questions, nothing happens, and you just let it go. It's okay. God knows. It's relaxed. And uh, but if you do get more information, now you might have an idea what not what next question you can ask to move the conversation forward. And I think for our listeners, as we are sort of centering this discussion around how to talk to the progressive Christians in your life, whether it's family members where you have to sit down at Thanksgiving and have conversations, or if it's just friends in your life, or even maybe I've had a lot of listeners email me that they've had to leave churches, but they're still in conversation with some people from their old churches. And this is such an important step in talking to your progressive Christian friends, because as you mentioned, so many of the words and phrases that are used are redefined, but the redefinition is never discussed. So this is such an important question to ask progressive Christians when, and here are just some examples for for people who are watching or listening, phrases like divine inspiration, as Greg mentioned, phrases like God's word, that gets redefined quite a bit. Words like love, what do you mean by love? What is love defined by for you? Uh, What is tolerance? What do you mean when you use the word tolerance or you use the word uh, authoritative in relation to the Bible? These are really, really important questions to ask because very Mm -hmm. often, even words like incarnation, words like resurrection have taken on in the mind of the progressive Christian an entirely metaphorical type of connotation. They, they, They aren't meaning those things as historical facts. They're meaning them more as myths we can learn from or, or good moral stories that can enrich our lives, but they're not connecting things like incarnation and resurrection and even virgin birth right. with historical facts that actually matter to the truth of Christianity. So this That's is right. such an important first tactic is just to ask yeah. those questions, what do you mean by that? So Greg, after we get in the driver's seat and we ask our, what do you mean by that type question. What's the second step you describe in your book as burden of proof? So explain that one to us. 
Well, the first step is to gather information in general and also to get specific information about a person's view. Because generally what they're doing, if you're in a spiritual discussion, is they are making certain statements that are contrary to Christianity. Okay. And so the first question allows us to get more information so we're completely clear on what their view happens to be. For example, I mentioned a moment ago um, a person who says, well, everything's relative. Well, that, of course, is meant to dismiss the Christian view, which claims to be objectively true. All right. So I ask the question to be clear on what they mean by that. But you see, they have just made a claim. All right. And uh, there is a rule regarding making claims. It's called the burden of proof rule. And the rule is that the person who makes the claim is the one who bears the burden. So if the DA knocks on my door and says, you robbed the bank, what do I get to say to the DA? Prove it. (laughs) Because the burden of proof is on the person who makes the claim, especially if it's controversial. So if somebody makes a controversial claim, it's it's their job to give reasons why anyone should take the claim seriously. It is not the Christian's job to disprove the other person's claim. Okay, now that's the key, because we are in the habit of hearing the challenge and then, oh, hey, here's why that's wrong. Okay, especially if we have some training. Um, But then what we've done then is we've given them a free ride. Okay, and and my rule is no more free rides. If you're going to make a claim, if you're going to lay, you're going to throw the gauntlet down, so to speak. That's a challenge. Okay, well now you can't just walk away and say I win. Right now you got to put up or shut up. You got to show us what you got. Okay, you got to fight for your view, so to speak. And this is where the burden of proof comes in. Uh, And a little '60s alert here, but uh, as in the immortal words of uh, Ricky Ricardo, they got a lot of splaining to do themselves, right? So what we want to have them do is do some of the splaining, right? And and so um, this is where the second Columbo question comes in. So so far we've got two steps of the game plan. uh, gathering information with the question, what do you mean by that? And now the second step is reversing the burden of proof. And the question we use now is some form of the question, how did you come to that conclusion? Or what are your reasons for that? What would make you think that everything is relative? And then wait and see what they've got. Now, <clears throat> this is where in both questions, I want our listeners to be prepared for what I call a Simon and Garfunkel moment. Remember those two guys back in 1966 wrote that wonderful song, Sounds of Silence. And that's what we get. We ask, what do you mean by that? Or you ask, how'd you come to that conclusion? We get dead air. They don't know what to say because they've never thought about it. And this is an insight that it's good for your listeners to have because people who oppose us look like giants in our eyes. You know, just like the book of Numbers, remember that? Oh, we were like grasshoppers to ourselves, you know? But when we start talking to them, we realize they are not usually as formidable as we thought. And when we simply ask for clarification of their own view or for the reasons for their own view, a lot of times they don't have anything to give us. And this can be a shocker to the Christian to hear the silence. It sometimes is a shocker to the other person as well. And this is why I tell people, if you can just use the first two questions, and that's all you worry about. 
Don't worry about it going any further. Just asking people what they believe and why they believe it. You'll be amazed at how much progress you can actually make. And I, I, I know in my own life and in the lives of so many other people who I've talked to at events who have used these techniques, they've told me how much progress they've made even when they're not pardon me, making the case for their own side just by asking these two questions. That's how powerful those questions are. And this works on the high levels of debate as well. I just recently watched a debate between Tom Holland and I can't remember the name of the other guy. Uh, Grayling was his last name, but they're both world-renowned historians. They were on Justin Brierley's Big Conversation and uh, basically debating whether or not some of our Western ideas are really rooted in Christian, Judeo-Christian ideas. And so Tom Holland was taking the view that that, you know, Christianity is basically what's informed Western civilization. And so Grayling was opposing him on that. And at one point in the debate, Grayling made this claim that Christians, and we've heard this claim before, that Christians burnt all the books in Alexandria. And there was this big, you know, thing that happened. And in Tom, the library there, the yeah. The library, yeah. And Tom Holland just said, where's your evidence? And it was amazing because I, yeah. I think, if I remember correctly, for about 10 minutes, Grayling just kept trying to change the subject or saying something yeah. really broad, like, well, everybody knows that. And, and mm -hmm. Holland's like, no, but what's the evidence that you have that, mm -hmm. that demonstrates what you just said? And he would not let it go. He just kept bringing it back around. I want to know the evidence you made for that claim. Sure. And it was so powerful because really what you see is like the emperor has no clothes. You think, I mean, this guy is very smart, obviously world-renowned, but sure. he's being asked for the evidence. How did you come, essentially, how did you come to that conclusion? Yeah. And it ended up refuting really his own point because he really didn't have any solid or, or reputable evidence that that had actually happened. And, and Tom yeah. Holland did a great job of, of sort of demonstrating that. Yeah. But let's, yeah. say, let's say that you're in a conversation where you ask that question, how did you come to that conclusion? And the person is able to, to sort of give a pretty good answer of the evidences that they put together. Uh, at this point, you know, do you move into the, the third stage of the Columbo yeah. tactic, which is led, uh, using Columbo to lead the way? So, so lead us into that. How do, how do you incorporate that third phase of the Columbo tactic? Sure. And maybe I should add a qualifier at this point, just so um, I'm not misunderstood. Uh, the the uh, Tactical game plan is not a silver bullet. That, it, it, that is, it's not the trick way of having conversations so you win the point in right. every discussion. Um, that's just, there is no such thing. All right. Um, and, and, and there are many times where we can go to, go as far as we're able to go and it's still not enough for that person. OK. Uh, or maybe it's not enough in, in terms of dealing with the issues. I get stonewalled at different times. I can't answer different things. And I do talk about how to deal with that in the in the uh, in the book, um, how how we proceed tactically if we don't know the answers to an issue. We, we, we are out of our ken, so to speak. We are, uh, we're dealing with things that um, we just don't have the depth in. And maybe the other person has much more information, okay? Sure. In that situation, we're going to stay a student. We're not going to try to be a, a persuader. We're going to just stay a student and gather as much information as we can so that then on our own and at our leisure, we can research uh, maybe an answer to that. <clears throat> if a person gives a pretty good, well, here's the reasons why I believe what I believe. Okay. Um, especially if, if uh, our listeners have read the rest of the book um, and looked at the other tactics and understand how they work. 
those tactics will help them to spot a mistake that's being made. All right. And, um, and if, if they spot the mistake, then they can use a question to exploit the mistake. Now, in that debate, I think Horton was the Christian guy, right? Uh, t- uh, Tom Holland. Well, I'm not sure if Holland. he's a Christian, but okay. he's definitely well, sympathetic he, to Christianity, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, the Holland, in, in that case, Holland asked the question. Now, what he might have done when char- when the charge came up that the Christians burned um, all the books at the Alexandrian uh, Library, whatever, <clears throat> he could have said, no, they didn't. I read this other material, blah, 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 blah. And he could have advanced all of his evidence against him. I mean, that's a way of going. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with that. He may have done a little of that too, but yeah. Pardon me? He might have done a little bit of that too, if I remember, but. But there is, but it is, but it's a, it's not as tactically shrewd of simply asking the question, you know, what, what is your evidence for that? Look, a lot of people will claim certain crazy things happened at the Council of Nicaea, 325, and Constantine did this, that, and the other thing. Yes. Actually, I was in an interview earlier today in which that issue kind of came up. And, um, and, uh, and so if somebody were to raise that, this is what Dan Brown said in his book, The Da Vinci Code, and others have done this too. Oh, the Council, uh, Council of Nicaea, they took all the Bibles and they changed all the wording and yeah. so that took made Jesus into the Son of God when he really wasn't. He was just a simple man and whatever. And and it was a close vote, you know, is what, right. what Dan Brown says, you know, as to whether Jesus was the Son of God or not. Hey, it turns out everybody at the Council of Nicaea even even Arius believed that Jesus was the son of God. The debate was about what that actually meant. They all believed he was the son of God. Okay. And so my question, I know this is a totally spurious way of characterizing the Council of Nicaea. But see, I might say, um, you know, how did you come to that conclusion? Well, you know, everybody knows. Have you read the details, the reports, the firsthand accounts of what happened at the Council of Nicaea? No. Well, I have, <laughs> and I have. It's in Creeds of Christendom. I mean, it's available. You can read them. And I said nothing like that took place. Now, notice, by the way, the difference between the claim that's made. Now, if I said, well, I read that, and I know that isn't what happened. That's one way. That's forceful. Mm-hmm. And me asking the question first, have, how did you come to that conclusion? Well, everybody knows this. Well, have you actually read the records? No. Well, I have read the records. And they don't say what you say. Here's what they say. See how much more powerful that is. Mm -hmm. So in the third use of Colombo now, we are going to use our questions to make a point, to kind of lead the way a little bit. And especially if we see a weakness or a flaw, then we're going to, instead of baldly pointing it out, uh, we are going to try to find a shrewd way of using a question to make the point as well. Now, this third use of Colombo, though, is more difficult. It's advanced. In the first two uses, anybody can do that. You could be a Christian this morning and this afternoon, use those first two questions without any trouble at all. But when it comes to the third use of Colombo, using questions to lead the way, well, that's a little different because now you want to use questions to hit a target and you have to know what the target is. And if you don't know what the target is that you want to hit, you can't go forward at that point. Yeah. So that's a limitation. 
Sometimes you just get so far and that's all you can do. Um, other times you might see something and then you probe a little bit more with questions and maybe later we'll get some illustrations of that. Well, actually, I'll give you one in just a moment uh, of, of questions that will exploit that weakness or flaw that the other person doesn't know uh, actually is true. I mean, uh, is, a, is a problem. Here's a, here's a great illustration. Nabil Qureshi and David Wood. I think many of your listeners must know Nabil who wrote uh, sure. uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He's with the Lord now. David Wood who's not with the Lord. Uh, he's with us, <laughs> thankfully. Um, and we all, we did a conference with him uh, last year together, yep, the two did. of us. Uh, D- David was his, he, he's the person who, who was back and forth with Nabil for two years to lead Nabil to Christ. And here's what happened in their one of their first engagements. Nabil comes into the room and sees David Wood sitting on the t- chair there in the hotel room because they were on the debate team together. And Nabil in... Um, standard Muslim fashion, points to the Bible and he says, you know that book has been corrupted, don't you? Okay, so now there's a charge. Right. Now, there's different things he could have said, but here's what, here's what David said. David said, really, what parts of the book are corrupted? When were they corrupted? Is any part of this book not corrupted? That kind of, a couple of questions. Nabil told me, he was caught completely flat-footed because he didn't know how to answer that. Now, I don't know if you knew Nabil, but Nabil was a really smart guy, and he was very quick on his feet, okay? And this time, he is an aggressive Muslim going after this Christian guy, uh, David Woods, David Wood, to to try to show him his Bible's messed up. And what did David do? He's relaxed, and he starts asking questions back that are reasonable questions. Really? How much of the Bible is corrupted? For example, what parts? How did you learn this? Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. Right. And Nabil told me he was stuck at that point. Now, he got out of this. He got unstuck pretty quickly. And then for two years, they were back and forth. Yeah. But um, there's a good example of using a question to make a point. And keep in mind, once again, when you ask the question, the ball goes into the other person's court and there is no pressure on you right. whatsoever. Well, I never did get to meet Nabil, but his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, was just hugely influential in my life. And it's a great book. So if anybody's watching or listening and you have not read that book, that is definitely one you want to get. Just you know, hop on over to Amazon and pick up Tactics and Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. <laughs> uh, well, Greg, I can't even believe it, but we're just about out of time. Oh. But as we close out here... Uh, you know, we're, we we we're, need to do a second session. I know, so we can I know. Cover all that other well, stuff. we'll have you back for sure. I'd uh, be glad to do that. Great, but but as we kind of structure this conversation specifically to help people talk to their progressive Christian friends and family, many of the issues within progressive Christianity have a deeply emotional component. So many times there are conversations that surround things like sexuality and marriage, uh, uh, the atonement being uh, in the eyes of the progressive and abusive doctrine that promotes mm-hmm. some type of a view of God that turns him into a cosmic child abuser uh, or other types of moral issues that are really um, emotionally explosive right, for people. Right. So what do you, if you could choose one tactic that you think would be really helpful for people in having fruitful discussions with the people in their lives who are asking some of these more emotionally driven questions uh, within that context of progressive Christianity, what would, what would that tactic be and what would that look like to apply that? Um, 
Well, there is a tactic called just the facts, ma'am. And the idea is, is to sometimes people hold views that are just simply inconsistent with the facts. When people say, well, there's been more murders and, and crime and killing and bloodshed by religion than any other thing in the world, this is just simply false. It's just factually, it's false. Historically, it's false. 30 million people died in the First World War, and that had nothing to do with religion. 60 to 80 million in the Second World War, it had nothing to do with religion. The amount of secular death in the world absolutely dwarfs the amount of uh, killing and bloodshed done by religion. And I chronicle that in detail in the second edition, uh, the 10th anniversary edition. Um, but that principle is one to bring to the table a lot when you're dealing with your progressive friends. Because because they they simply got a lot of theological they get a lot of theological things wrong because their head is turned largely by the culture and somewhat by their own emotions. So let me just I'll role, I won't role play with you. I'll play both parts for the sake of time. But um, uh, say one way of dealing with say the blood atonement, okay, which they think is brutal, cosmic child abuse, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and the, here's the question I would have. I understand your view, and I can understand how, boy, that would be so offensive to you when you think about it. Let me ask you a question, though. Do you think that God is a God of love? Yes, of course I do. That's why I'm so upset. Do you think Jesus taught love? Was he the one of love? A, a, yes, of course he is. And that's why this whole thing about blood atonement and blood everywhere, that's all wrong. Okay, so if God is a God of love and Jesus is a man of love, then whatever they say is true is going to be consistent with them being loving. Is that a fair thing to say? Now I'm asking a very important procedural question. Because if God and Jesus teach the blood atonement and God and Jesus are loving, then the blood atonement is not unloving. Okay? Penal substitution, blood atonement kind of thing. But I want them to get the piece on the table first. I'm asking these questions, so getting affirmation, I'm putting these pieces on the table. Yes, God is loving. Jesus is loving. So whatever they say is going to be consistent with their character, right? Right. Okay, now let's see what they say about this issue. Because if it turns out that penal substitution is what they taught, and the apostles who were trained by Jesus taught, and by the way, this is important, the apostles in the New Testament, these were, every one of them were trained personally by Jesus, including Paul, okay? And the pillars affirm that in Galatians chapter one or two, Paul talks about that. Okay, so then we go back, as you've done in, in, in uh, another gospel, which I'm just putting a plug in, this is a great book, and everybody who's interested in progressive Christianity are, are going to get a very good tutorial on how to deal with your progressive Christian friends. You go through this issue and demonstrate that this is at the core, the blood atonement is the core of the gospel message. First Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as first importance, Jesus died for our sins. Huh? There it is. Isaiah 53 quoted by Jesus himself yeah. that, you know, he, 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 he took our stripes on himself, et cetera, et cetera. That's all. So, so now we have a Hebrew prophet speaking for God and Jesus himself and Paul trained by Jesus saying in the text that Jesus died for us to cover our sins, to pay for our sins. And if Jesus says it, then it must be, it can't be unloving. 
In fact, it's the most loving thing. Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friend. So this is where you use the questions to prepare a place for the answer that you're able to give. And as much as possible, even when you navigate through those particulars of the answer, you want to use questions to get affirmation of obviously true things that are going to set up the 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 case that you're making in this case for substitutionary atonement. So there's an example of it. I know we're tied on time. And I'd love to talk much more with you on this, but and I, I hope we do get another shot and uh, um, get in more detail about some of the tactics. But well, maybe that will help. Let's do a part two. We'll just we'll just say right now we're going to do a part two. <laughs> we're going to talk more tactics, right, and I also want to talk with you about. Your wonderful book, The Story of Reality, which is, we haven't even touched on that, and we barely just scratched the surface of the tactics, so we'll definitely do a a part two on this. For anyone watching or listening, the book is called Tactics, A Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian Convictions. Get the 10th anniversary edition that Greg is holding up. Don't get this one that I'm holding up, because it doesn't have the red seal. Get the red seal. Also, Greg... That one's all gone. They can't even get it on Amazon anymore. Oh, okay, good. So you can only get the new one. Uh, Also, Greg hosts a live broadcast every Tuesday from 4 to 6 Pacific time. Go to str.org for more information on where you can hear that. You can call in and ask Greg questions. He's just great at fielding questions. But Greg, it has been such a delight having you on the show today. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, I look forward to the next time, Lisa. Hey, thanks so much for watching today. Don't forget to pick up Greg's book, Tactics. If you would, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube and click the bell so that you get notified every time we release a new video. If you want to learn more about how to get bonus content and early access to podcasts and blog posts, go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. Have a great week. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.